0: Your source when you need answers, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
1: Well, welcome. Another edition of uh, The Dr. Joe Show, and I'm Joe Schwartz. Uh, My background is in chemistry, and I sit every Sunday afternoon here from 3 to 4 and chat with you about matters of science and solicit your questions, which you can uh, put in at 514-790-0800. You can also text us at 514-800. I like to throw out a question every week as we get started. And uh, we have one of those rare situations uh, where we have a leftover question from this morning on the trivia show. Usually the question that I ask there gets very, very quickly answered, but such was not the case today. So, uh, I'm going to repeat this question, and uh, obviously it is a science-oriented question. What I asked was, what is the link between Anne Frank and Napoleon's withdrawal from Russia in 1812? So there is obviously some sort of scientific uh, connection there, and uh, the question is, what is it? If you know what it is, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. <clears throat> and uh, you can also text your questions and comments to 514 uh, Obviously, we are still dealing with the uh, horrific coronavirus situation and people being uh, infected with COVID-19, we had been going down somewhat in quebec but over the last few days we have gone once more over the 100 uh, number on uh, reported new daily infections uh, this puts uh, somewhat of a cloud over the school opening uh, issue and uh, this is something that uh, i'll tell you honestly i i don't really know what to say about this i uh, as you probably know from uh, you know listening to me over the years, I'm extremely evidence based. I I go where the data leads, uh, but in this case, I, I I just don't know, and I'm very uh, reticent to you know comment on situations where I really don't have enough facts on which to base those comments. Uh, there are pros and pluses. There are pros and minuses on each side of of this uh, situation. Uh, obviously, we cannot keep going on without kids going to school. That has all kinds of social uh, implications as well, educational implications. But we also have to be extremely careful about um, increasing the incidence of uh, COVID-19. At first, it was believed that children were less of a vector for the disease. Uh, That now does not seem to be the case. The the, uh, most recent data suggests that children uh, are just as likely to transmit COVID-19 as anyone else. Although what is true is that when they come down with the disease, they may not suffer from it as uh, extensively. The symptoms may be somewhat uh, uh, more uh, moderate. That is, that is true. Uh, but, of course, uh, it doesn't mean that they can't bring the disease home, even if they don't uh, have severe symptoms by themselves. We already have had some cases uh, in the U.S., where schools opened and they had to be shut down because of positive uh, cases University of North Carolina started uh, normally with in class uh, courses and they had to rescind that and now they are back to to online so this is a, a an evolving situation and uh, <clears throat> i mean as of as of now uh, schools in quebec are are opening it isn't clear that they have taken all the safety measures that can be taken and obviously there are financial constraints here Uh, But, uh, you know, ventilation is very important. Uh, The more we circulate air, the more dilute any exhaled virus becomes. But many schools don't have excellent uh, uh, ventilation systems. And while it is possible for now to open windows and get some cross currents, uh, pretty soon the cold weather is going to put an end to that. In terms of fans... Uh, People have asked about this. Well, again, it's not a straightforward answer. Uh, When you have fans, uh, ceiling fans, that probably is not such a great thing because what those do is they push air down. So any virus that may be circulating the air from uh, exhalations of infected people is just going to get pushed down. What we need to do is is to move air uh, in such a fashion that fresh air comes in and old air goes out. So putting a fan uh, in order to propel air out the window, that does make sense. Uh, Using fans to move air uh, parallel to the ground uh, is different from squishing the air down from from the ceiling. There's also the issue of the uh, air filters, and here too there are many nuances uh, because... uh, First of all, the air filters or air purifiers, as they're called, uh, generally have uh, a limit on the amount of air that they can process. So they may be needed in each room. And uh, the ones that work best are uh, the ones that are equipped with a HEPA filter as well as an activated carbon uh, filter. And uh, those will take out very small particles uh, down to to less than 0.3 microns. So we are talking about droplets uh, that are very small, and those are the droplets that harbor the uh, the coronavirus. Uh, I'm not aware of any studies that have shown that using these uh, air purifiers is of um, of any benefit. On the other hand, it would be pretty difficult to mount studies that show that that is um, that is the case. <laughs> also a little bit confused these days with the new uh, edict in the united states that people who are asymptomatic do not need to uh, be tested for the virus this flies in the f- ever we have been told before this advice does come from the cdc it's very hard to understand you know just how this has uh, come about uh, i suspect that it's downward pressure from uh, the executive branch of the us government and uh, to a number of cases that are discovered. Because of course, as, as uh, President Trump has often said, if you uh, test, you will find more cases, which obviously is true, uh, but it doesn't mean that if you don't test, those cases do not exist. Uh, testing is very important. That's the only way we're going to uncover the asymptomatic transmitters of this disease. And eventually we have to have a, a, a good cross-sectional profile uh, of the population to know just how many people are out there who are infected and don't know that they are infected. So it is really hard to understand why this exhortation uh, about uh, uh, you know, not testing asymptomatic people uh, testing should be as widespread as possible now, i understand that there are difficulties involved and uh, particularly in the us they don't have enough equipment enough facilities to do all all the testing which i think is the reason for you know the pressure to on cdc the centers for disease control to come up with this new uh, new edict there are some other uh, uh, curiosity in the us uh, we talked last uh, an extract of oleander, this decorative plant called oleandrin, uh, which was uh, hyped by Mike Liddell, the gentleman who pushes my pillow on, on TV. He had the ear of Ben Carson, the housing secretary, who then went to Trump, and they had a meeting with with uh, Liddell. And Liddell told them about the, the miraculous effect of um, uh, this new... Compound oleandrin. Uh, I think this is a, uh, certainly putting the cart before the horse. There's absolutely no evidence that it has anything of benefit to do with uh, the coronavirus. And although uh, Trump at first said that you know he would eagerly look in into it, uh, we haven't heard anything. Since about his looking into it, which is a good thing, because at least he is not pushing this was pushing the hydroxychloroquine. Of course, there has been another big development, and that is the development of the convalescent plasma situation in the U.S. And that is something that uh, I want to spend a bit of time talking to you about. And we will do that after we take a break and check traffic.
0: Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
1: Okay, let's see if we can solve some mysteries, but I remind you of the question that I asked. <clears throat> what is the link between Anne Frank who died in Bergen- Bilsen concentration camp in 1945, and Napoleon's withdrawal from Russia in 1812? Obviously, there's a scientific connection or I wouldn't be asking that that question. All right, but in the meantime, let us go to Debbie. Debbie.
0: Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. I have a hypothetical question for you. People spit on the sidewalks all the time. I inadvertently walk on it. I come home, I take my shoes off, and, you know, I answer my phone or whatever, and my cat starts sniffing around my shoes. How possible is it for him? to
1: contract covid-19 you know with this this uh, curse of disease we can never say impossible about anything but i would say that that comes pretty close to it it is extremely unlikely that uh, the cat will uh, contract it first of all it's quite unlikely that animals contract it although you know it's it's, it's not impossible uh, but the the chance that you know there's a viable amount of um, virus in that spit that has survived and has made it into your house and in, on, into your cat. Uh, it's very unlikely. Very unlikely.
0: Okay. Thank yeah. you very much.
1: Okay. Hi. All right. Let's uh, go to, is that Sima?
0: Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Okay. Uh, I have a question to ask you. Uh, can face masks impact your oxygen intake?
1: No, this is a question that has been often asked during the last couple of weeks with the you know the implementation of the face mask uh, laws yeah uh, and this has been thoroughly investigated. Uh, You know, you can put an oximeter on your finger and and walk around with a face mask, and it shows no difference at all. But when
0: I wear one, like when I go grocery shopping, for example, let's say if I'm in a grocery store for maybe half an hour, an hour, mm -hmm. I find sometimes like a little bit, but I have allergies. I don't know if it's because of that, but I find it a bit difficult after a while. Like it feels uncomfortable to be wearing it and and breathing, I find, becomes a little bit more difficult.
1: Well, it... uh uh, it is uncomfortable. I'll, I'll agree to that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is harder to take a breath. However, you have to... Take far view fewer breaths than you think in order to maintain your oxygen levels. Mm-hmm. So you know it may be that you're finding it uncomfortable and harder to breathe, but it doesn't mean that the oxygen level of your blood has gone down. Okay. You're still getting enough oxygen. So okay. this this has been really quite thoroughly uh, investigated. Okay. And uh, I will agree that you know uh, obviously we would rather not be walking around all the time with with a mask, but uh, there's a lot of evidence now that it helps, so we got to give it a shot.
0: No, absolutely, and I think we have to still make an effort for health reasons. Like, even though I don't like wearing one, but I know health-wise, it's it it does it's not a perfect thing, but at least it helps to prevent a little bit, you know. Yes, and it is it a lot.
1: Something. It's a lot less uncomfortable than being on a ventilator.
0: Absolutely, very <laughs> good point. Okay, <laughs> thank you.
1: Bye. Uh, let's go to Stephen.
2: Doctor Joe. Hi. My question has nothing to do with the COVID-19. Can I oh, ask?
1: in the long run, everything has to do with COVID-19. <laughs> no, this won't. <laughs> okay. Go uh, ahead.
2: Okay, well, I, I do some Italian cooking, like I boil pasta and put in the pizza sauce then cut up pieces of mozzarella cheese. And I find I have to use mozzarella cheese, which is sold in that cube. If I use the round thing for pizza or the kind that is sliced in a delicatessen, it all stays in one space I just get stuck to the spoon when I mix. Could that be because of different ingredients they use to make the cheese stretchy, like people like it for? Well, pizza? there are
1: different. There are different kinds of mozzarella. The, the real mozzarella that's used in Italy is uh, made from buffalo milk. Uh, the mozzarella that is is uh, sold here is made from cow's milk, so it's not exactly the same. Although but, I, I, no, no, it, I'm talking
2: about by the same company. There's saputo cheese in the. <laughs> Square block or the rectangle. There's the round one, it's called pizza cheese. There's the kind that they slice out of delicate They're all Saputa, but some slight different ingredients. Maybe they purposely make the one that's for pizza stretchy.
1: Yes, that's possible. It's also very likely that they have different moisture content. Uh, Some are softer and some are harder. So tell me again, when you're making your sauce, so what is it exactly that you do?
2: Okay, I boil pasta, usually elbow macaroni. Yeah. I put in Gattuso pizza sauce, that's the one I like. Then I cut up pieces of mozzarella cheese, put it in it, and they melt. If it's cubes, it all becomes like liquid and mixes around fine. But try using from the round thing or from slices behind a delicatessen counter. Mix it up, it's all stuck to the spoon.
1: Ah, that's an interesting. I'd, I'd have to look at the list of ingredients uh, there, but I suspect that the moisture content has a lot to do with it.
2: And by the way, I'm the only one who tried your question on trivia this morning, and it it my answer was wrong, but I'm spotting something in the encyclopedia that might have something to do with it. What's that? In 1812, Napoleon entered Moscow to have it set on fire by the Russians. Does that have anything to do with your answer?
1: No, no. It has to do with why... Napoleon had to withdraw from Russia. What happened to his army?
2: Oh, well, he was going to invade Moscow, but it was set on fire by the Russians. After his retreat, he was defeated by superior forces at Leipzig, and the Allies entered Paris in 1814. Any of that have anything to do with your answer?
1: No. (laughs) Okay then. Back back to the drawing board. Okay. All right, we'll see if anyone else uh, is able to uh, come up with this. Okay, um, I I really want to tell you about the uh, uh, business uh, last last week. Uh, about the plasma in the United States, but that's going to take me a little bit of time. So we'll run out the clock here for the first half hour answering questions, and after uh, after the news, we'll get back to that. So uh, let me go to Robert. Robert. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
2: I'm calling out about the um, major differences between Lysol spray, which I have, which I'm holding the can in my hand, and 70% isopropyl alcohol and 99% isopropyl alcohol. On the Lysol can, it says it's 58% ethanol, and then a bunch of other letters which I don't. My high school chemistry then doesn't tell me what it is. And then there's dimethylbenzylammonium saccharate. Right. How much stronger or weaker is Lysol than 70% isopropyl or 99% isopropyl, which I can buy at the pharmacy?
1: Uh, they are they actually pretty well uh, the same you you can use either one the uh, the more the question these days uh, and this is just a very recent development is about these quaternary ammonium compounds anything that you see on on the uh, li- list there that ends in ammonium something uh, belongs to a family of compounds known as the quats And uh, although these have been used for years without giving it a second thought, uh, today with COVID everything is being re-examined. And it turns out that some of these have endocrine disrupting properties. Now, whether or not that has any effect on on, on humans is is uh, unlikely, but not not impossible. So uh, I would say that uh, at this point, using the alcohol based ones is, is probably preferable because we know a lot about alcohol and and uh, that it doesn't really have any harmful effects. Is
2: Lysol spray toxic if it's on your hands?
1: No, it is no. I mean, there's no evidence of that. Uh, the trouble with any spray is that you can always inhale it, and that's not a good idea. Okay, uh, we'll get back to, to some more of your questions and, of course, convalescent plasma, which is an interesting emerging story, and I hope that someone can tell me the link between Anne Frank and Napoleon's withdrawal from Russia in 1812. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science, you can use The Dr. Joe Show on
0: CJAD 800.
1: Okay, let's get down to convalescent plasma, which last week uh, President Trump portrayed as a game changer. It is not that, but there is something to it. Uh, Plasma is the yellowish liquid portion of the blood in which uh, blood cells are suspended. It contains a large number of molecules, glucose, various electrolytes, hormones, clotting factors, and proteins of all sorts. Now, among those proteins are the antibodies produced by the body's immune system in response to what are known as antigens, the potentially harmful substances like bacteria, fungi, parasites, and and viruses. These antibodies combine chemically with antigens and neutralize their effect, with each type of antibody being unique and able to defend against a specific antigen. Infection with the SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19, stimulates the formation of antibodies that are specific to this virus. And these antibodies can be found in the plasma even after someone has recovered, which is why transfusion of this convalescent plasma into an ailing patient can conceivably help in recovery. Now this concept, the concept of using plasma to treat disease is by no means new. It dates back to the late 19th century, when German physiologist Emil von Behring cured animals of diphtheria with what he called antitoxins isolated from the plasma of infected animals. Well, these antitoxins were eventually identified as the proteins we now know as antibodies by Paul Ehrlich, who predicted that one day they could be used as magic bullets in medicine. For his pioneering work, Bering received the first-ever Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, that was back in 1901, and Paul Ehrlich was also eventually awarded the prize, that was in 1909. Bering and Ehrlich's work quickly led to the investigation of the use of blood plasma to treat infectious diseases some types of pneumonia responded, and complications were reduced when serum, and that's plasma with the clotting factors removed, when that was used instead of of plasma, so serum worked better. But the advent of antibiotics and the side effects, such as fever and allergies reactions associated with the serum treatment, uh, this resulted in the abandonment of the antibody therapy. However, not in all cases, in a few cases today, such as post-exposure to viral conditions like rabies, measles, hepatitis A and B, and the neutralization of toxins associated with diphtheria, tetanus, and botulism uh, still uh, are are situations where this kind of uh, uh, antibody therapy is used. In 1975, interest in antibodies was invigorated, Why? Because George Kohler and Cesar Milstein found a way to produce very specific individual antibodies in the lab. When an antigen is introduced into a mouse, so-called immune B-cells react by producing these antibodies we speak of, and then they bind to the antigen. Well, those B-cells can be isolated from the animal's spleen and copied or cloned, The antibodies they produce are specific to the antigen and can be isolated. And Kohler and Milstein shared the 84 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine uh, together with Niels-Kai his for this discovery. These are called monoclonal antibodies, and they have revolutionized drug therapy, because they have an application in many major diseases like cancer, inflammatory and autoimmune conditions, cardiovascular disease, various infections, allergies, and even osteoporosis. As soon as the SARS-CoV-2 virus was identified, researchers began to work on monoclonal antibodies that would bind to and neutralize the spike protein. This is the protein the virus uses to bind to a cell and initiate infection. That's what you see in all of these pictures cropping out from the virus. Clinical trials are already underway right now. And Dr. Fauci, who of course is the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, thinks that an effective use of these monoclonal antibodies will come before a vaccine. Using these antibodies that bind to the SARS-CoV-2 are produced, uh, and if they are shown to be effective, then plasma from patients who have overcome a COVID infection can be useful, since it will contain a host of antibodies, including those for the virus in question. That's why the US has just issued this emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma. This is not the same as FDA approval. That requires extensive safety and efficacy studies, and it allows a product to be generally prescribed. The EUA, this emergency authorization, is a temporary measure that allows for unapproved products to be used in an emergency situation when there are no approved products available. The only criterion is that the FDA must determine that the potential benefits outweigh the risks. In this case, that was based on a trial coordinated by the Mayo Clinic and it involved over 35,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients who were transfused at various times after diagnosis with convalescent plasma that had high, medium, or low levels of antibodies. Basically, the trials showed that patients who were transfused three or four days after diagnosis had a lower mortality rate after seven days had passed than patients who did not receive plasma that had been collected from people who had recovered from a COVID-19 infection. This was not a placebo-controlled trial, so it isn't clear whether there were other differences in treatment other than with plasma. In support of this emergency use authorization, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn reported that mortality had been decreased by 35%, meaning that in every 100 patients treated with convalescent plasma, 35 would be saved that was the number that was also used by president trump it is completely wrong and han next day admitted this the 35% came from an analysis of a subgroup of 3000 patients who had received plasma either with high or low antibody levels in the high group 8.9% died after 7 days while 13.7% died in the low group These numbers differ by 35%. This is termed the relative risk. But the difference in absolute risk, a much more meaningful measure, is 13.7 minus 8.9, which is 4.8. So, it isn't 35, but 4.8 lives that would be saved for every 100 patients. This is still significant, but much less than the highly touted and wrong 35%. Convalescent plasma may help some patients, but it is not the breakthrough that was claimed. Monoclonal antibodies may eventually turn out to be Ehrlich's magic bullet against SARS-CoV-2. We wait with bated breath, but we wear a mask over that breath. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I need answers. I asked a question about the link between Anne Frank and the withdrawal from Russia. Roman has been waiting the longest, so we will give him the first shot. Roman.
0: Yes. I think because it was cold and there was lack of food. No. No?
1: No. Okay, we'll go to Victor. Victor.
0: Yes, Dr. Joe. I think I had the answer. I think it is uh, the winter. We've, uh, Napoleon had to withdraw his troops because his uh, troops could not survive uh, and uh, Russian, well, the Russians, while withdrawing from the place uh, they followed a scorched campaign and they started burning all the things
1: but why why could they not survive what because was the problem hunger what Hunger. no, no not hunger okay uh, let's let's go to david david
2: yes hi dr joe hi Uh, I believe it was typhus.
1: Yes, it was typhus, of course. Uh, Anne Frank died of typhus in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1945. And Napoleon's troops were infested with the disease. And uh, he went to Russia with close to half a million men. And of those, only about 6,000 eventually returned to France. The others died for all kinds of reasons, but the main reason was, was typhus. And uh, this is uh, its a very interesting story, and I want to tell you a little bit about it, so congratulations for that right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, typhus is not the same as typhoid fever. These are two completely different diseases, although both of them are, are bacterial. But anyway, symptoms of typhus include fever, a body rash, and sensitivity to light. And very often you have delirium, and that occurs because of uh, brain inflammation, and that can eventually be lethal. So although the ancient Greeks described symptoms consistent with typhus, it was in the 16th century that the disease, uh, likely brought back by the Crusaders from the Middle East, was the first time documented in Europe in the 16th century. There was an epidemic in England, at the time, and the result of the disease being introduced into the courtroom by prisoners who had been incarcerated in filthy cells. This came to be known as the Black Assizes. Spectators, jurors, and judges had what was called jail fever, another name that entered the lexicon for typhus. Although it was clear that crowded, unhygienic conditions gave rise to the disease, the actual cause was unknown until 1909, when French bacteriologist Charles Nicollet identified body lice as the carriers of the disease. He had noted that infected patients, as well as their clothes, were able to infect others. When the clothes of the patients were examined, they were found to be infested with lice. And to show that after being given a hot bath and a change of clothes, typhoid patients would no longer be able to spread the disease. This to him suggested an experiment in which he infected a chimpanzee with blood from a typhus patient, retrieved some lice from the animal's body, placed them on a second chimp. Within 10 days, the second chimp came down with typhus. Body lice depend on humans to shelter them and their eggs in their clothing, to warm them with their bodies, and feed them with their blood. So it's not surprising that soldiers and sailors crowded in cold weather wearing lots of clothes with little opportunity for changing, present ideal conditions for the transmission of typhus. Lice will desert feverish or dead human hosts for others with more satisfactory body temperatures. Nazi concentration camps were a classic example of transmission of typhus. Hundreds of thousands died from the disease, including Anne Frank, who succumbed in Bergen-Bilsen camp in 1945. The Germans also used the fear of typhus and the perverse ideology that Jews were carriers of typhus to relocate them in isolated ghettos. The confinement, such as 400,000 people packed into 1.3 square miles in the Warsaw ghetto under starvation conditions, in fact, did result in an epidemic of typhus. But instead of accelerating as winter approached, the epidemic suddenly declined. This seems to have been due to doctors in the community recommending social distancing and isolation of infected people, monitoring for lice, and washing at least as much as was possible under the terrible conditions the Nazis had set up to promote their propaganda of Jews being vectors for disease. Ending the outbreak actually thwarted that plan. Uh, Sadly, the story does not have a good ending. The Nazis eventually used the fear of typhus to eliminate the ghetto and uh, deport the inhabitants uh, to concentration camps. But it's interesting to note now, as we reflect on COVID-19 and the importance of isolation and, and quarantine, that this is actually what was done in the Warsaw ghetto. Uh, Jewish doctors in the ghetto actually organized an underground university to teach people uh, about uh, hygiene, and, and as much as they could, they, they did attempt quarantine under those dreadful uh, conditions. Anyway, getting back to the life story, just a year after Nicole had found the role they played in the transmission of typhus, American pathologist Howard Taylor Ricketts determined that the infective agent was actually a bacterium that first infected lice and then their human hosts. Eventually, this bacterium was named Rickettsia prowazeki after him and Polish scientist, J.M. Prowazek, who had also investigated typhus. While both men achieved a well-deserved fame, they paid for it with their lives. Both died of typhus contracted during their research. Nicole had tried to develop a vaccine using crushed lice and serum from patients who had recovered from typhus. Well, that actually was based on using what today we call convalescent plasma. He tried it on himself and on a few children, but the vaccine did not prove to be effective. In 1937, Harold Cox at the U.S. Public Health Service did introduce a vaccine made from cultured bacteria that was widely administered to all allied military personnel. While it did not prevent the disease, it did reduce its severity. A far more significant measure was eliminating lice with DDT powder that was blown under clothing. Incredibly, Allied forces in World War II had no deaths due to typhus, and DDT also stopped a terrible epidemic in newly liberated Naples during the winter of 43-44 by use of DDT. While this chemical was very effective, it was eventually discontinued because of environmental concerns and lies developing resistance. A solution to the typhus problem was finally uh, found in 1947, with the introduction of broad spectrum antibiotics, and these can kill the bacteria. Today, typhus is rare, and if it occurs, it can be cured. Well, that's it. We have run uh, smack out of time. Unfortunately, I couldn't get around to all the questions that were texted in, but we'll see what we can do about them next week, because we will be back next week, same time, same station. And until we meet again, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.